80. I'm going to turn this one on. Changes the sound now. Um, but you guys, uh, I hope you know what a, what a blessing it is to have Gio and Karen. They are a blessing to us in the ministry staff of the region. Uh, but, but they are really a, a, a precious couple. We love them so much. There's a lot of passion. There's a lot of energy. There's a lot of love for God, a lot of love for people. And they really have become great friends of my wife and I. And it is true, Gio and I do golf occasionally. And I'll have more to say about that in, uh, later in the sermon. But I just want to say thank you to you. And I want to thank you, say thank you to the congregation for inviting us out here. I, I had, this is my second time coming out here. And it's always been fun every time. And you guys have a great, great uh, setup here. Uh, you know, the, the story or the message today is, uh, is about second chances. And it's, we're going to be looking at the story of a king who didn't deserve, but got a second chance. You know, I think about my life, and I like to consider myself a good student. I, uh, from the time I was in elementary school, junior high school, high school, college, and even in my master's program, I never received a grade lower than a C. At least not on any of the report cards that mattered, right? I don't know about progress reports. I can't remember those. But I know at the end of the semesters or the end of the school year, I always had at least a C or better. In fact, I probably had a lot of C's uh, for, for most of my time. It was a lot of C's and, and some B's and maybe a few A's here or there. But basically, I was above average student. I wasn't an A student. And I hope that doesn't lower your opinion of me. I'm sorry. I was not an A student. That just wasn't me. I was uh, above average, a C plus B student. That's, to be honest, that's where I was. And, and hopefully, uh, you know, you'll give me whatever respect uh, that, that that deserves. I will say this, when I got my master's, I did much better in my master's program. I think the years of maturity helped. And I was a, an A student there. I had straight A's in my master's program. But, but overall, in my entire educational career, I had never received a grade lower than a C, except once. And, uh, you know, sometimes I like to think, I wish I could go back and sort of undo that one. I wish I could get a do-over on that one. What had happened was, is I was in college. I was going to CSUN. And it was, I think, my second year there. I can't remember exactly. And, if, and you know, if you want to know something about college, the way you can tell the, 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 uh, the hardness of a class is by the number of units it's worth. Okay? So in college, your typical college-level course is three units. That's what it's worth. That's, that's the typical, what you would expect from a college-level difficulty course. Three units. And uh, there's also four units in five-unit classes. Those do come up from time to time. And, and I've had my share of those, too, in college. right? And with each unit added, it's a little harder. The class gets a little harder. I even, at one point in my college career, took a nine-unit class. I've never met anyone else that had a nine-unit class, except for the people I took that class with. It was incredibly hard. Hardest semester I had in my college career. But on the flip side, there's also easier classes. There are two-unit and one-unit classes. Now, one-unit classes, you would think, are the easiest. But that's a little tricky, because a one-unit class is usually a lab, for the college students you know this. It's usually a lab. It's associated with another class. So for instance, you have biology. That might be a three, maybe even a four unit class. That's a hard one. And then you have your biology lab. And you have to take the lab along with the class. So you would think, oh, the one unit class is easy. Well, not totally, because it's associated with a difficult class. And so some of the coursework will bleed over. So in my humble opinion, the easiest possible course you can take in college is a two unit class. 
These are the, the classes that require minimal time. And uh, you know, they're usually the ones you take if you need to boost your GPA, right? If you need help with your, your grade point average, you, you go get a bunch of two unit classes. I want you to take a guess which class I failed in college. The easiest two unit class you could think of. That's the class I failed. No, it's even worse than PE. The name of the class was home economics. I failed, embarrassed to say, I failed home economics in college. You know, I, uh, <laughs> I, I think back and um, I try to understand, you know, what went wrong? What happened to me back then? Why did I fail that class? And a couple things come to mind. I've got basically five reasons. I don't know all the specifics anymore. It's been a long time. I'm sure there were others. But these are some generalizations that I came to realize. Number one, uh, I was rebellious. You know, you get in college and there's a point in time in your college career where, you, where you're just sort of tired of school. And you start to rebel. I'm sure it happens at every level. But you do. You just start to rebel. I didn't like the teacher and I wasn't real fired up about that class. And so I really didn't have a heart for it. I just, my heart was in a different place. I just really didn't want that class, even though I had, I had taken it. I think the second thing that uh, got in the way from me uh, passing that class, or oh, re resulting in a fail, the one fail I had my entire uh, 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 or educational career, was that I was pretty prideful. I thought that the class should be easy. It's two units, home ec. I mean, how, how hard is this, right? I should be able to breeze in and have no problem and breeze out. And so I was just prideful about, about the class. I didn't take it all that seriously. I think another thing, and this is really key, is I had some bad influences in the class. I had a friend from high school, and if you are in college, never take a class with a friend from high school. It's not a good idea. <laughs> I used to work late. Like my wife, I, I worked when I, went to, when, when I was doing my undergrad. And I would get off very late. I'd get off at 11, 12 o'clock at night, and the class happened to be a 7.30 in the morning class. So it was hard to get there. And I'll tell you, I'd show up a little late, and there would be my friend standing by the door, and it was much easier to go get breakfast than it was to go to class. So I had a bad influence. I think, I think also I compromised a lot. I compromised my own study habits, right? I just didn't put the energy and the time into it. I lowered my own standards. I barely even went to the class. No wonder I failed it, right? I, I missed it quite a bit. And then lastly, I was careless. I didn't focus when I needed to. I didn't put the time and energy into the textbooks. I, I just was careless about the class in general. And for all those reasons, and I'm sure there were others, but for all those reasons, I ended up with an F. You know, I wish sometimes I could go back and retake that class. It just, it would be nice to sort of retake it or somehow undo it and get it off of my record. Have you ever wished you could have a second chance at something? Have you ever thought about it? Maybe it was a class for you or maybe it was something else, a, a failed job or a relationship or whatever, and if you could go back in time, you could identify what went wrong, you would go back and you would do it differently, right? Well, today we're going to look at the story of a king who didn't deserve it, but he got a second chance. Turn with me over to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. 2 Chronicles chapter 33. 2 Chronicles 33, and we're going to read verses 1 through 6. Let's pray before we read. Father, I ask for your Holy Spirit to be with us now. Come and meet with us and minister to each of us. God, speak through me as I look at your word and as we together look at your word. Help us to see great insights 
for each and every one of us. Let your spirit speak to each and every one of us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to the starry hosts. He sacrificed his sons in the fire of the valley of Ben-Hinnom. Practiced sorcery, divination, witchcraft, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. I want to give you a little background on the history here. Manasseh was king of Judah. This was during a time when uh, uh, the, the nation of Israel had divided into two, a north and a south. There was Israel was called the northern kingdom and Judah was the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom had been destroyed. The Assyrians came down and wiped them out. And so Manasseh was king of what was left of this great nation of Israel. And it was just called uh, uh, the nation of Judah. Now prior to Manasseh, uh, way back, a couple hundred years prior, God had made a special relationship with some, some unique men. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made a covenant with these men that if they followed him and worshipped him, he would turn them into a great nation. Well, Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel, had 12 sons. And those were the 12 tribes of Israel. Those were the start of the 12 tribes. And those sons had many, 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 many kids. And eventually they turned into a great nation, a great multitude of people. And God had a special relationship with this people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God had this unique relationship. And he said, if you would follow me and obey me, that I would bless you and you would prosper and I would lead you to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And for the most part, the Israelites did. They obeyed God, and God brought them to the land of Canaan. It was a wonderful land. And God had called them to enter into that land and to conquer, to destroy the nations that were currently in that land because those nations were very corrupt. They were very evil. And there was a point in time where God just said, we have to deal with this, and the only merciful thing to do was to destroy them. That's how evil and corrupt the people in Canaan were before the Israelites got there. The Israelites obeyed God, they entered the land, and they basically did that. They conquered the land. And God prospered them. And then he raised up a king named King David. King David coalesced this nation, uh, this group of people, into an actual nation. They now had a king and a monarchy and structure and government. And King David was really an amazing king. Loved God, followed God, had his mistakes, but followed God. And God blessed him and he turned Israel into a legitimate world power. They were a legitimate nation. His son Solomon took them to even greater lengths. Even greater heights. But after Solomon died, there was a division in the kingdom. And it split into north and south. Northern Israel, southern Judah. Northern Israel had bad king after bad king. Mistake after mistake. And it lasted a couple hundred years. And then the Assyrians came in and wiped them out. One of the reasons why they didn't finish the job and go all the way down into Judah and destroy the whole thing was because there was a good king in the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, had a lot of good kings. There were some bad towards the end and they eventually were taken out also. But for a time, they had several good kings, and one of them was a man named Hezekiah. He was a great king of Judah. 
And it was because of his righteousness and his relationship with God that, that really stopped, God ultimately stopped the Assyrians from invading all the way and taking out the entire nation. It was really Hezekiah and his incredible walk with God and his faithfulness to God, in spite of his mistakes, that Judah was spared. Manasseh was the son of Hezekiah. And the Bible says that Manasseh did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That he went a completely different direction away from his father Hezekiah. And this begs the question, what happened? What happened that Manasseh would go such a completely different direction? Well, I think we could look back and at the scripture here that we just read, and we could probably identify a couple of generalities. We probably can't be specific. None of us were there. The Bible doesn't give us exact details. But I think we can learn some generalities. We can make some assumptions. I think right off the bat, in reading this, we can see that Manasseh was rebellious. I mean, there's really no other way to think about it. He was just flat rebellious. His father led the people in a specific way, in a specific direction, in a way that was right with God, and Manasseh chose a completely different path. That is rebellion. He went in a completely different direction. I think we could argue that there was some pride in Manasseh's heart. I don't think Manasseh just thought to himself, oh, I want to be a rotten person, I want to be a rotten king. Maybe not at the beginning anyways, but maybe he thought his way was better. You know, maybe he failed to see the lessons of his father Hezekiah. Maybe he failed to make the right connections, and so in his pride, he thought he had a better way. And so he had a whole different policy for the nation of Israel under his leadership, which lasted uh, 50 some odd years. I think we can make a, a good argument that Manasseh had bad influences in his life. We're not going to look at it, but in Kings, there's, a, there's a, a parallel account to this passage in the book of Kings. And in there, it mentions that Manasseh killed many innocent people. You know, most scholars believe that Manasseh was responsible for killing some of the prophets of God. His father, Hezekiah, had one of the greatest prophets that ever lived as one of his advisors. And it was largely why Hezekiah made good choices. He had good advisors. He had good prophets. A man by the name of Isaiah. You can't miss Isaiah when you read the Bible. He's there. One of the largest books in the Bible. If you close your Bible and just open it to the middle, you'll probably open to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was one of the greatest prophets. And he was an advisor to Hezekiah. You know, most scholars believe that Manasseh had Isaiah put to death by sawing him in half. Manasseh chose other advisors. He chose spiritists, diviners. He chose uh, foreign priests to foreign gods, to false gods, to foreign worship. That's where Manasseh got his input. He had bad advisors. I think we could argue that Manasseh compromised a lot. He compromised. I don't know where it started, but he compromised. How did he compromise? Well, I think a good argument can be made that, that Manasseh, when he, when he eventually came into power, most people believe that, you know, one king was in power, and then when his son was crowned king, they probably co-led. So there was probably a, an overlap between Hezekiah and Manasseh. And then when Hezekiah finally died, Manasseh went out on his own. Well, probably around that time, we see Manasseh's compromises come out. You see, I think Manasseh saw the northern tribes get destroyed, and he began to realize that Assyria was becoming a powerful country. He began to realize Egypt down in the south was becoming a powerful nation. He began to understand that Babylon was starting to rise up. And I think Manasseh, this tiny little kingdom that was left, this small little kingdom of Judah, was kind of in the middle of all this political stuff going on. And I think Manasseh perhaps thought, you know what, we better fit in 
with these other nations. We don't want to stick out like a sore thumb like my dad did. Because, man, they might get mad at us. They might want to come in and take us over. And so maybe Manasseh compromised to try to fit in. To try to look like the rest of the countries around him in the hopes that maybe they'd leave him alone. I don't know. It's a speculation. I think we can also, without a doubt, come to the conclusion that Manasseh was careless. It says that he put uh, altars in the very temple of the Lord. He had no care for the, 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 the integrity of their uh, ancestral religion. He didn't, he didn't take care of it. He didn't nurture it. He compromised it. He, he, was, he was loose with it. He was careless. I think all these things could be said about Manasseh and his leadership and why he chose to go on a wrong road. Why he chose to go down the road he went, which we will see was ultimately the wrong road. I think all those things played into it. You know, the truth is, if we all get very honest with ourselves, every one of us in this room has a little bit of Manessa in us. That's just the truth. Maybe some more than others, but we all have a tendency for rebellion. Have, have we ever not rebelled at some point in our life? We all have a propensity to be prideful. We all have been guilty of having some bad influences in our life. We've all compromised somewhere, either our values, our integrity even maybe our faith, and we've all been careless at some point in our walk with God or in our, in our actions, have we not? Are we not all a little bit like Manasseh to some degree? Turn with me over to chapter, uh, verse 7, 2 Chronicles verse 7, let's read on. He took the carved image he had made and put it in God's temple, of which God had said to David and to his son Solomon, in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites leave the land I assigned to your forefathers. If only they will be careful to do everything I have commanded them concerning all the laws, decrees, and ordinances given through Moses. But Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray, so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. Now, what a powerful condemnation of Manasseh. He was guilty of more evil than the people that they had destroyed when they first entered into the promised land. That's what God said about Manasseh, his choices, and his leadership in Judah. And you've got to understand how powerful of a statement that is. Because as we said before, the people that were there before the Israelites moved in were, responsible, were, were practicing human sacrifice. There was no such thing as human rights. The immorality was, uh, was off the charts. The idolatry, the false worship, the lack of truth, the ungodliness, the unrighteousness was off the charts. And the Bible says that Manasseh was worse than the people that they disposed a couple hundred years prior when they first entered into the promised land. I don't know if Manasseh won the award for worst king ever, but he was certainly a nominated member. He was certainly one of the guys that got the nomination for worst king. You know, I like to golf. Gio mentioned that we like to golf, and, you know, I appreciate him being humble and acknowledging that I do beat him every time we play head-to-head <laughs> -head competition. It is one of the most encouraging moments for me. I, it builds my faith. He's, he's incredibly humble that way. 
But you know, one of the things about golf, if you ever get a chance to watch, just watch for a minute. I know some of you are like, I can't watch, I'll fall asleep. It's actually a great game. It's a lot of fun. But if you ever notice when you watch golf, it seems like it takes forever to, for the guy to hit the ball. Right? They walk up there and they do this and they get this and they do this and they do this and they look around and they, you know, and it just seems like they're going to take forever. You ever know what they're, do you know what they're doing when they're doing all that? They're, they're, they're focusing on their alignment. It's called setup. Setup is extremely important in golf because your alignment has to be correct in order for the ball to go where you want it to go. Your feet have to be in alignment, your knees, your hips, your chest. So when you make your swing and you make contact, that club face is going to hit the ball where you want it to hit it. And that ball is going to go where you want it to go. If you're off just a little bit, if one foot is a little too far back, if your hip is a little crooked, if your shoulder isn't tilted right, when that club face hits that ball, it might be off by a fraction of an inch. But after 10 yards, the ball is off by 5 yards. And after 20 yards, the ball is off by 10 yards. And after 30 yards, the ball is off by 20 yards. And so on it goes downrange. And the farther the ball goes, the worse off the ball's going to be. And the, farther you're, the, the worse your alignment, the, 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 the worse your alignment is, or your setup, the more off it is, the worse the shot's going to be. Sometimes shots can veer off 30, 40 yards off target. You might end up in the water or out of bounds. How's your alignment today? How's your spiritual alignment doing at this time? Are you thinking about your life? I want you to think about your life for a minute. I want you to consider, where am I off? Is there rebellion somewhere in my heart at this hour? You know, I don't know how it started with Manessa. But one thing I know is Manessa at some point got his setup wrong. He got his alignment wrong. And he got on the wrong road. And the further down that road he went, the worse it got. Things go from bad to worse when your alignment, when your setup is off. And that's exactly what happened with Manessa. He went from bad to worse. How about you? Have you ever said to yourself, how did I get here? How did I get to this place? My wife shared about her, her challenge in college with credit cards. It started with, you know, $5, $6 charge at Denny's. No big deal, right? You don't notice it. It's imperceptible. The alignment is off. And then as time goes on, the further on she goes down that road, next thing you know, it's thousands of dollars of debt. You may not think seeing pornography in an instant or in a moment for a short time is all that bad, but if you persist, where does it end up? It'll end up in possibly an addiction. It'll end up in ruining relationships. You may not think that having a glass of wine every night after dinner in and of itself is a big deal, but if it's not being corrected as you go, if you're not being careful as you go, what happens? It can become alcoholism. You may not think being alone in a car with that man or that woman is that big of a deal. Hey, it's not in the Bible. The Bible says I can't be alone with this person until there's an affair weeks, months later. I mean, we all know this principle. If we get off early on and we continue on that off path, it only goes from bad to worse. You cannot, you know, sort of meander along just slightly off. It's always going to veer at some point. You're always going to end up at a place where you turn around and go, how did I get here? I went from bad to worse. Look with me over at verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. 
So the Lord brought against him the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. The passage starts off with a very chilling statement. It says that God was speaking, but nobody was listening. God speaks to us consistently. He speaks to us through his word, through conscience. And he does so consistently, but there is a point in time, and every one of us needs to be warned, myself included, there is a point in time where we stop hearing. And that's how bad things got with Manasseh and the people of Israel. They no longer heard God. They no longer heard that voice suggesting a course correction or a realignment. How about you? Are you starting to lose that voice of God in your ear? Are you starting to miss it? Are you starting not to hear it anymore? Is it fading? Is it getting ever so quiet and quieter and quieter and quieter till you can't hear it anymore? That's where Manasseh had gotten to. He had gotten to this place where he no longer heard God. He no longer heard the warnings. So God acted. The amazing thing about God is that when he, if he doesn't, if we don't hear him, he'll eventually act. It's not a promise. It's not a guarantee. God is not under any obligation to warn us or even to act in our life on our behalf. Absolutely none. He's God. He's under no obligation, but the fact is, he will. He will warn, and if we don't listen, he will act. And how did he act? Well, he had the Assyrian commanders invade down into Judah. And what did they do? They put a hook in Manasseh's nose. This is a picture of the king with a hook in his nose. And they led him out of the city and of the country in front of all the people. Look what we caught. It was humiliating. It was denigrating. God acted. And Manasseh reaped the consequences of being, of, of, of just continuing down the wrong road. Of, of getting so far down that road that he no longer heard God, and so God had to act, and Manasseh reaped the consequences. A hook in his nose, lost the kingship, lost all of his, his self-respect and dignity, and was carried away into captivity. And the Bible uses a key word here. It says, in distress. Most scholars believe that Manasseh was in captivity for a couple of years. And this word distress communicates oppression and confinement. It's not like Manasseh was, uh, uh, you know, exiled to some nice island in the Bahamas, like happens today. He was in distress. You know, it's interesting, in our modern world, we're used to this concept of nation building, right? We, we have a, a, a country somewhere that gets awry, they've got bad leadership, and, and if we're called to intervene for whatever reason, we've intervened. This is what we did, World War II. But we didn't intervene to destroy the country and to humiliate it 
and, and denigrate it. What we did is we wanted to rebuild it, so we rebuilt Japan. We rebuilt Germany. We wanted to make this place better than it was. We wanted to deal with the bad leadership, but we wanted to make it better than it was. Same was true in Vietnam and Korea. That was the, the objective. Same is true in Afghanistan and Iraq. That's the objective. It's to try to rebuild it, to make it better. But in the ancient world, that wasn't even on the radar. They didn't think like that in the ancient world. Their job was to humiliate you, to denigrate you, to bring you to nothing, to destroy you. And that's exactly what they did to Manasseh. How far do you have to go down that road before God intervenes and brings you to nothing? Some of you might even be contemplating some bad decisions. You might even be thinking about, you know, going down the wrong road, letting your rebellion get out of control, letting your pride run wild, getting involved with the wrong people, starting to compromise or be careless with your faith, and you're heading down a wrong road, and the question is, is how far are you going to go, and how much does God have to do to wake you up? How far does it have to go in your life? You know, it didn't have to go that far with Manasseh. He could have repented somewhere along the way, but he didn't. He just continued on that road. And so God allowed the Assyrians to humiliate him, to lead him away by the nose. What's great about our God, though, is God's intention wasn't to humiliate Manasseh. That was the Assyrians' intention. But God's intention was to humble Manasseh. I like to picture Manasseh at this moment. I try to imagine him. There he is in distress. There he is oppressed. There he is in, 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 in uh, confined and in oppression and, and just brought to nothing. And I, and I like to think that maybe early on he, he turned to Baal. But there was no answer. And then maybe he turned to Asherah and there was no answer. And then maybe he turned to Molech. Hey, I sacrificed children to you. And there was no answer. And then maybe he tried to find his advisors, the diviners, the spiritists, and they didn't have any answers. And at some point in his distress, he started to remember his dad. He started to remember Hezekiah. Dad. Dad did what was right. Maybe dad had more sense than I thought he did. Maybe dad knew something I didn't understand. And I think it was there when he thought of dad that then he thought of God. And the Bible says that he sought the Lord. That's always step one. It's always the start of, of a good thing is when you seek the Lord. And then he humbled himself. And then he prayed. He entreated God. And then in verses 14 through 16, we're going to find out that he repented. He actually repented. Verse 14, after he rebuilt the outer wall of the city of David west of the Gihon Spring in the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate and encircling the hill of Ophel, he also made it much higher. He stationed military commanders in all the fortified cities of Judah. He got rid of the foreign gods, removed the image of the temple of the Lord, as well as the altars he had built on the temple hill and in Jerusalem. And he threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it and told Judah to serve the Lord. The God of Israel. You know, Manasseh did a 180. But the 180 came after the distress. After the difficulty. After he had been brought to nothing. And he had to turn to the only answer he could think of. His dad and the God of his dad. 
And then Manasseh, once he got there, he sought the Lord, he humbled himself, he prayed, and then he changed. Have you done that? Have you had a chance in your life to seek the Lord? Have you humbled yourself? Have you prayed to God and then gone about making the changes necessary to be right with God? If that's not something you've done, then it's something you must do. It's something that you've got to come to terms with. If it's something you've done in the past, maybe you've, you know, like we all do, gotten on that wrong road again. And, and maybe you need some course correcting. And guess what? Course correcting is always the same pattern. Seek the Lord, humble yourself, pray, and then go about changing. And that's exactly what Manasseh did. He was actually restored to his kingdom. Now, I think the Assyrians, when they restored him, they thought, okay, we humiliated this guy enough. We've embarrassed him. Let's put him back in power, and he'll be our little puppet. But God, God had other plans. God had seen an actual change in the man's heart. And so, really, God was behind the scenes working through the Assyrian commanders, and they gave Manasseh the throne back. He got to go back to Judah and be king again. This is the story of a king who didn't deserve but got a second chance. He was restored to the throne in Judah. You know, sometimes I think some of us can feel like I've had all the second chances I can get. Or, or you know what, I've gone too far. There is no hope for me. And I want you to hear that I doubt you went as far as Manasseh. <laughs> Manasseh was pretty darn bad. And some of us have been pretty darn bad. But if there's hope for Manasseh, there's hope for you. And the key, though, is you've got to turn to the Lord. You've got to humble yourself. You've got to pray. And then you've got to change. There's no such thing as cheap grace. God's not interested in lip service, in verbal changes. God is interested in the complete package. Both the language and the actions need to change. There needs to be real repentance. If it's not too late for Manasseh, it's not too late for you. The great thing is, is that God, he's not obligated. He's not obligated to give us a second chance. But when we read scripture, we find out that he wants to give us a second chance. That's the kind of God we worship. The God who wants to give us a second chance. He wants us to have an opportunity to make things right. I shared the story about being in college, and in college, you can actually do this. If you fail a class, you can retake the class. And uh, I tried. The next semester, I retook home ec and got the same class at the same time with the same teacher. And so I dropped it and went on with my life. Just accepted the fact that I would have an F in my educational career. I want you to look at something really interesting. Verse 17. It says, The people, however, continued to sacrifice the, at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. You know something? Manasseh, with all the changes that he did, which were, were great and were many, there were some things he couldn't do. I couldn't retake that class. I just didn't have it in me. And, and Manasseh, there was one thing in particular the Bible notes that he didn't do. He didn't destroy the high places. To God, the high places were an abomination. You see, in the ancient cultures, in the ancient Canaanite practice, 
they would build altars on high places. That's why the high places are always bad in the Bible, because they're, they're people looking to false gods for help. And so in the northern uh, half of the country, before it was destroyed, you know what one of their first sins was besides dividing the country in two? They built high places. They built one in the south end of the northern half and one in the north end of the northern half so that the people didn't have to go all the way down to Jerusalem to worship because they didn't want their people heading into the southern half of the kingdom because they might actually reunite and reunite the kingdom. So the leaders, the kings of the northern tribes, built two new temples for the people to worship at so that they wouldn't have to go all the way down. And that was one of their first and greatest sins that they committed. Why, and that ultimately, that little misstep, wasn't little in God's eyes, but ultimately led to the downfall of the nation. They got that alignment off. They were wrong in their setup there. Because God had commanded to worship at the temple and the temple only. Well, Manasseh comes out of captivity and he's doing some reforms, but the truth is he couldn't reform everything. He'd become irrelevant. He had lost some of his relevancy. I mean, who was going to really give this guy the respect that he once had after seeing him carried out of the city with a hook in his nose? There were just some things that he couldn't fix or wouldn't be easily fixed overnight. What I appreciate about Manasseh, though, is I believe he was still determined to repent. I believe he still went about the changes that he could make. And even though there was some loss of credibility and there were some changes that were either too hard or, 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 or maybe wouldn't even change at all, Manasseh was still determined to do what was right, to repent. You know, guys, there are things in our lives that we cannot undo. You have been given a second chance if you're a Christian today. You have been given a second chance to repent of your sin or to change your life. But you know the truth is, there are some things that you can't undo. They'll never be undone. You can't take back a divorce. You can't take back an abortion. You can't take back the loss of your virginity. You can't take back the debt. It doesn't just go away that you piled up from the error of your ways. You can't get back your integrity all at once overnight. It's a rough road. It's a difficult road. There is no happy Hollywood ending here. It's not like the rainbows popped out and birds started flying and everybody came back and said, Oh, God's great. Manessa's awesome. That's not what happened. It was difficult. Repentance is difficult. It's dirty. It's hard. It requires sweat, blood, and tears. And stamina over time. And the word for that is determination. You need to be determined to repent and continue to repent. It's necessary to a godly life. We've got to be determined regardless of what goes on around us. Regardless of what might take a long time. It may take a while for you to establish rapport with the children that you now only have half custody of because of a broken relationship. It may take you time to undo the damage from the loss of your virginity or the loss of or, or, or through an abortion. It's going to take time to pay off debt. Are you determined? Are you willing to pursue the same course regardless of the difficulty? Regardless of the obstacles? And regardless of some of the things that you just can't change? And I want to give a warning here. If you've never done some of those things, please don't ever do them. Please don't ever go there. Please don't ever compromise your morals. 
your values. Please don't ever compromise your personal body or the life that God has given you in, in your body. Please don't ever do that because you can't undo it. Please don't ever start with what seems innocent. Oh, a little pot, a little marijuana. It's just a joint. Yeah, yeah, and your foot's just a little out of alignment. And you keep doing that, and you're going to be 50, 60, 70 yards off track. And you're going to find yourself in a whole world of hurt. Please don't go there. But if you have gone there, there is a second chance. God wants to give you a second chance. He's not obligated. He doesn't even owe it to you. But he's the kind of God that gives it. He gives the second chance. And it's going to require a lot of determination to crawl out of some of the holes, myself included, some of us have crawled into. It just takes time. Are you going to be determined? Look over at chapter 34. Verse 1, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. Josiah was Manasseh's grandson. Manasseh's son was a man by the name of Amnon. You can read it just prior to that there in verse 21. Amnon was a bad king. When he took over, he followed in the footsteps of his father Manasseh before he repented, only reigned two years, and then was killed by his own court. You know, Manasseh couldn't take that one back. He couldn't take back the loss of his son or the children that he sacrificed in the fire. But he had a grandson, a man by the name of Josiah. And Josiah was most likely born during the time of Manasseh's repentance. After Manasseh had been in distress and in captivity for whatever years it was, after he had been restored and he went about determined to make changes, Josiah was born during that time. And I don't know if Josiah and Manasseh actually had a physical, you know, knowing each other type relationship. Maybe Josiah knew his grandfather early on in his life. And maybe he was able to hear the stories of his grandfather Manasseh. And maybe Manasseh was able to impart to him the things that he couldn't give to his own son Amnon. The, the changes he had made. The rightness of the road that he was on now. Maybe he was able to do that. Or maybe Josiah just heard it from the advisors that were around him. Maybe he just heard the story of his grandfather and the great change that, went over, that came over his grandfather. But the point is, is that Josiah went on to become one of the greatest kings in all of Israel. In all of Judah, he was one of the best. And I want to encourage you this week, if you haven't read your Bible, you don't have a plan for your Bible this week, I want you to take time and read chapter 34 this week and follow the story of Josiah. Josiah was awesome. He restored, not only did he do uh, more reforms than his father, but he even went further than almost every other king in Judah was able to go. Josiah got reforms that, that no other king before him could do. He was one of the greatest kings Judah ever had. And so Manasseh, the story of a king who didn't deserve but got a second chance, got a second second chance. He got second chances, plural. 
He got a second chance in his own life. He got a second chance to, to, to right the ship that he was in. There were things that he couldn't change. There were other things that were going to take time. But he stayed determined. He did that 180 and he stayed determined. And then he got another second chance. Second chance is with his grandson Josiah. Who went on to become one of the greatest kings Israel ever had. Isn't it great that we serve a God of second chances? A God who keeps giving, he doesn't, he's not obligated, he doesn't have to. There's nothing in the book that says he has to. But he's willing to not only give you one, but then more. Yeah, there's going to be things that may take time or may not be able to get undone. But there's other things that he's going to give you another chance at. I want to close with a story. This is a great couple in our ministry. This is the Washingtons. Lamont and Chrissy. They're, they are very dear to the ministry in the San Fernando Valley. Their story is incredible. Lamont and Chrissy came together and began dating. They weren't disciples. They weren't Christians. And like all of us, they went down the road of rebellion, pride, bad influences, compromise, carelessness, and a few other things to boot. And that road went from bad to worse, like it often does. They uh, ended up homeless. They lost custody of their children. There was drug addictions. There was violence. There was a whole world of hurt going on. And they were in distress. They were in a lot of distress for a long time. Chrissy's mom was a disciple. She never gave up hope. For Chrissy or for Lamont. Eventually in their distress, Lamont and Chrissy began to seek God. They humbled themselves, they prayed, and then they went about making changes. Lamont and Chrissy have been coming to church for years now. They have been determined to change. They, they are a fixed fixture in our ministry. They're there every Sunday and every Wednesday. I mean, you never, everybody knows them. They're always there. They're always a part of things. They're a fixed presence in our ministry. They are determined to stay the course, to do that 180 and stay the course. And they both became disciples years ago. And they've lived an incredible, faithful Christian life. There's a lot of things they can't undo. There's a few things that are going to take more time before they're undone. But they're determined. This picture was taken at the baptism of their second son, Dustin. He's the one right behind the kid in yellow. Their first son, Lamont Jr., has already been baptized uh, quite a while ago. You see, God gave them a second chance. He gave them their kids back. And he gave them a home. They're homeowners. But then he gave them second chances. Both their oldest kids are now disciples. This is the God that we serve. The God of second chances. Amen.